My conversation partner is Dr. Robert Erickson, eminent church historian, scholar on the German church during the National Socialist period under Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party, and on the Holocaust. Uh, Bob, as I know you, um, when we left off, we were talking about those Christian sects, small groupings, um, ad hoc gatherings of individuals who were assisting Jews uh, to uh, flee Germany uh, when they were most threatened. Uh, they were resisting the Third Reich and uh, Hitler's uh, racialized uh, regime, but they were few in number. These were tiny groups, relatively speaking, in comparison to the much larger churches, both the established churches uh, and uh, the other lesser-known uh, uh, groups, communities within mm -hmm. Germany. But on the whole, uh, those who opposed Hitler worked against uh, the Nazi horror, were, were very small in number, and yet uh, were successful, at least in small measure, in saving lives. Yes, that's true. Let's pick up where uh, we left off. You were describing one group in particular right in the heart of the thing, in Berlin, at uh, the parish church where Martin Niemöller uh, was pastor at the time. And, and I have to ask you, uh, do you know, uh, would Hans von Hammerstein, was he a part of that group working within the church? I do not know that for sure. Um, okay. The yeah. reason I ask is I, I had the pleasure of meeting him shortly before he died. Uh, and at the time, he was at least the last known person to have talked with Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh -huh. before Bonhoeffer's execution. Oh, and, wow. and I knew he had been swept up with a number of arrests uh, at the parish church there, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what you just told me uh, about their creation of false identification for Jews to help them get out of the country, yes. or at least to avoid detection. Right. And uh, I didn't know that, or I would have asked <laughs> yeah. Dr. von Hammerstein that question, but unfortunately exactly. he's gone now. But uh, well, not to distract, you, you were making a very important point about these other groups that were present and, and working in a salutary and, and very courageous way within mm -hmm. Germany. I do want to add one thing about this particular movement where they were creating false ID. And it's a, it's a double irony. First of all, um, maybe this first part isn't so irony, but a bit heroic. The 19-year-old the man who was uh, creating the stamp that they needed and doing the actual forgery of the documents, when he heard that a roundup was happening, and it took about 10 days for all of this to transpire. He got a warning. Uh, he had acquired a bicycle. He had acquired a false identification for himself. And he'd acquired a map from Berlin to the Swiss border. 
And he actually got on his bicycle and he rode to Switzerland on that bicycle with his false ID. And by the way, just to add another group of pastors in Württemberg, uh, down in and around Stuttgart, he was told to contact them uh, by one of his uh, friends and advisors in Berlin. And they welcomed him and, and fed him and put him up for two or three days of safety before sending him on to the Swiss border. So there were little groupings like this, a group of pastors in Württemberg uh, who were, who in fact um, provided safe houses and assisted in escaping such as that. And then um, when he crossed the border uh, on his hands and knees, waiting, going through a stream at the border and was apprehended, he asked to be taken to Karl Barth the theologian who lived in Basel, because people in Berlin had recommended that this is a place where he could find refuge. And Karl Barth then took him in for the next two or three years while he completed his artistic education and became a graphic artist for the rest of his life. Um, the I met him in Basel when he was 85 years old, and he told me this entire story, a remarkable story, and uh, this also confirms to the reputation of Karl Barth, who was a critic of Hitler from the beginning. He lived and worked in Germany in the 1920s and up to 1935 when he fled the country for Switzerland. And uh, Karl Barth, both as a theologian and, and for his political views, uh, was never tempted by the Nazi point of view. But of course, one of the preeminent Nazis that I studied, a man named Emanuel Hirsch, uh, who, to my knowledge, remained a supporter of Hitler until his death in 1972. This was the rumor at the University of Göttingen where he was living in retirement. Um, uh, he, he never criticized the stance that he'd taken in full support of Hitler. But in any case, one of Emanuel Hirsch's comments on Karl Barth, who was, in fact, a colleague of his at Göttingen for several years in the early 20s, uh, he said, Karl Barth can never understand these things because he has he's a Swiss man and he doesn't have a German heart beating in his chest. And that was a typical point of view of Hirsch. And in fact, it almost certainly is something that helped protect Barth from the what I would consider the mania of approval, nationalistic approval, that so many German Christians and German professors of theology uh, indulged through that Nazi period. You know, as you told the story about the young man, the graphic artist, I was thinking, boy, uh, there's hardly anything better than a living original source for an historian, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and just, it, it was wonderful as a source, but also just wonderful for the reality of it, you know, to be in his presence and with his wife and his uh, four young boys. Uh, they weren't that young anymore, but uh, uh, the family that he'd raised there in Basel. And what an incredibly brave soul. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not... Not simply, uh, it was enough that he was creating uh, this work product to benefit yeah. human life and, and human culture. Uh, 
and doing it surreptitiously at great personal risk, but then to present that in his own travels, to present his own work yes. a, 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 as a way of self-protection, all of it just becomes uh, it's a wonderful really almost story. overwhelming. I, I literally get goosebumps thinking about yes. that kind of moral courage uh, being uh carried out by a, a, such a young person mm -hmm. may i may i uh, i i know this um is a difficult task when uh talking with an historian <laughs> but is it possible for you to travel with us into the present moment and look back at these lessons from the nazi era in germany and apply them in any way and i know i'm 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 pressing the boundaries here of uh the historian but i, I as you are talking i i'm making so many comparisons to our own time and and i i'm convinced that the historian is one of our most important resources in understanding our own day, notwithstanding Bonhoeffer's idea that, you know, you can't replicate a time mm -hmm. or a place, but the, the principles that, um, emerge, the, the perspectives, the, the understanding of human nature of, of, uh, human culture of human behavior and on and on it goes when i think about what is happening in the world today for example the rise of various forms of nationalism again mm -hmm. back in europe mm -hmm. uh and and even here in the united states there are forms of it in many other places of course can we learn from what occurred in the church in germany you know i've often had to uh, explain that while you know current political figures one in particular uh is not in fact adolf hitler or wasn't adolf mm -hmm, hitler mm -hmm. there was only ever one hitler there was only ever one nazi party there was only ever one 1933 germany mm -hmm. but but there are um, elements that repeat themselves. And if we ignore history, I think we're at great peril for understanding what is happening in our own time and what might happen if we fail to meet those moral, ethical, social, political and most certainly religious challenges can you can you help us to apply the lessons learned in the church's experience uh in the nazi period to what we might be or could experience in the here and now uh i would be happy to talk about that and in fact for the last several years it's been a major concern of mine because I do see, I, I, I accept your qualification absolutely, that there's only one Adolf Hitler and there's only one Nazi Germany. 
And there's only one set of policies that were implemented by the Nazis. And to try to say, well, this is the next Hitler, or this is the next Nazi party, or this is the next uh, version of that particular horror, uh, that's not an accurate way or a suitable way to use history. However, uh, I have tried to identify specific ways in which we can see factors or circumstances that overlap with what, in my view, with what I saw happening in 1930s Germany and among all of those people I first studied 50 years ago uh, as professors of theology. Um, and the first uh, example uh, I did with this was a paper I gave at a conference in Switzerland, and it was published in 2018, where I talked about the relationship between Christian voters in America, the self-identified Christian voters, and Donald Trump. And you said the man who shouldn't be named, and we can talk about him as the man who need not be named. But in this case, I wrote a book, I wrote a, an article that I first presented as a talk and then got published in a German journal. Uh, and it's in English. So later I could give you the, the uh, connection if you wanted it. Oh, please. Um, in fact, uh, if, uh, with your permission, we'll make it available uh, to our podcast family. Yes. Yes, I would. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. I'll do that uh, by email after we're done. But in any case, uh, I called this paper Devotion and Memory. And that was the title of the conference I was at. But it so happens that one of the people that I studied, uh, Gerhard Kittel, was known in people who talked to me and uh, within his family of having daily devotions so that as he was raising his family in Tübingen, where he taught theology, uh, New Testament theology. And by the way, I should add right away that Gerhard Kittel is the founding editor of something called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to only as the Kittel. And I have run into pastors all across the U.S., who are proud of the fact that when they were at seminary, when they were getting ready to become preachers, uh, they acquired, maybe their wife gave them a copy of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, this work that Gittel, Gerhard Kittel uh, produced. I'm a one very well-known, important I'm Christian. <laughs> okay. I'm one helps. of them, in fact. Uh, yes. And, I think but it you, was my wife, Cheryl, who gave me the volume. But in, Wow. In Bible college, the, you know, the very wow. conservative evangelical institution where I was yeah. trained initially yes. for ministry before seminary, yes. uh, it, the byword was go to Kittle on that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's a tremendous confirmation of what I was saying. In any case, uh, Gerhard Kittle was the first person I published on and, uh, and the first of these three theologians that I really focused on that, uh, that I brought to public attention. And uh, what I discovered about Gerhard Kittel is that he was the most extraordinary anti-Semite, uh, probably in his heart of hearts, uh, but absolutely in his career. 
so that when Hitler came to power, uh, Kittel, Hitler came to power in January of 33, in June of 33, Kittel gave a lecture in Tübingen called The Jewish Question, Die Judenfrage. And in that lecture, and it later was published as a book, he proposed that everything needed to be done as the Nazis were proposing it to protect Germany from the Jewish menace, from the Jewish people, and that this would mean that Jews would not be able to have their jobs in any important function. They shouldn't be newspaper reporters. They shouldn't be doctors. They shouldn't be lawyers. They shouldn't be professors, school teachers, or have or or authors. They shouldn't get their books published. Uh, that all of this should be denied to Jews because they were such an incredible danger to Germany. They were an enemy of danger, and uh, this astonished me. And uh, I then followed his, you know, and the point I was making in this lecture was that here's a man who's very pious himself and, and very harsh toward Jews. And then there are a couple of other elements here. In that same speech in that book, he said, Christians are likely to be soft hearted and wonder about this mistreatment of Jews. But Christians have to know that it's not good to be soft-hearted, you have to face the truth as harshly as necessary to solve the problem. Now, from 1933, and I, that's that one article that I did that uh, sort of re take another look at that um, dichotomy between his piety and his political behavior. In addition to that, he went on to work in an anti-Jewish institute that was created by the Nazis. He became the single most important contributor to their annual journal. And in all of his work for that anti-Jewish institute, uh, he was trying to identify how Jews had become the evil force that they were, when it happened, and he thought it happened um, during the period when the Jews were forced out of Israel, about 500 BCE, and then uh, started the diaspora about 500 AD, uh, or completed the diaspora, and that in that period, he thought that their original, he didn't deny the, uh, the Jewish Old Testament as being a, an appropriate religious uh, book, which many, many Christians in Germany did deny, and the Deutsche Christen denied. But he said, uh, ever since 500 AD at the latest, uh, they have uh, been only a menace against Christians, and they have to be put in their place, and we have to protect ourselves from them. And um, in this particular guy, Gerhard Kittel, I was able to follow the story through 1944. In both 1943 and 1944, he was a guest professor at the University of Vienna, and I found just typewritten copies of like two lectures he gave in those years. And in those lectures, by the way, he knew that Jews were being murdered in the death camps or in the uh, shooting galleries of the Eastern Front because his son came home and told him about it. And by that time, he was aware of the murder of Jews. And yet he said, Adolf Hitler is the twin bul bulwark along with the Christian church in protecting us from the Jewish menace.
So here's a guy who um, in his entire later career, by the way, uh, he was put in prison for his behavior. And uh, although he didn't die in prison, he died shortly after at the age of 59. And so his career came to an end uh, with the collapse of Nazi Germany. But in any case, here's a guy who's a famous name, uh, a very pious Christian, and he counseled Christians not to get all soft-hearted about the necessary treatment to put Jews in their place and protect Germans from them. That has, in a, a second, that, that <laughs> has an eerie contemporary ring to it. Yes, exactly. And uh, the second uh, foray I took in this direction was another talk I gave, which uh, then got published. And it actually looks at the politics of the Christian right in America. And the way that that developed, I've used various uh, other scholars who know this better than I do. But in the way that um, the Republican Party and the Christian base within the party became the supporters of Donald Trump in 2016. And in many ways, there was even a, a rumor going around for a while that uh, one of these evangelists said he was sure that Trump had accepted Jesus into his heart, that there'd been a conversion moment. And that was in the New York Times, but eventually that got uh, sidestepped because no one thought that there was any validity to that or that that could actually be shown. But in all these cases, we've had, and up to the present, we've had very specifically religious leaders claiming that Donald Trump, for all of his callousness, for all of his immorality, for all of his lack of uh, religious behavior or practice, uh, that he is God's answer for America today. And of course, there are many critics who have, uh, have looked at this and have, have dealt with this question. And I want to use one example uh, from my own work, uh, just to highlight what's what I think is wrong with this. And that is that uh, one of the people I first studied, Emmanuel Hirsch, he wrote, and I found this astonishing, he wrote that he knew that Adolf Hitler was a great leader for Christians in Germany, because just listen to what he said in his last speech to the Reichstag, and this came in the spring of 1933. He ended this speech with a prayer, and and Hirsch quoted the prayer, uh, you know, I asked God's blessing, and so on and so forth, uh, amen. And Hirsch quoted this prayer, to prove that that Hitler was really a very good Christian and that Christians should appreciate this and support him. Now, uh, there are Christians in America who think that uh, Christians should be supporting Donald Trump, but I defy any of them to find Trump actually saying a prayer in public. I might be wrong, uh, or showing any other sort of uh, religious faith or religious belief or practice of the Christian ethic, and uh, and yet he is identified 
with, and he has been supported by the same Christian vote that put Hitler into power. Now, uh, it is possible that there are other good reasons for Christians to see Trump as their friend. And I may not agree with all of those reasons that have to do perhaps with um, Christian schools or uh, other aspects of the public forum and its relationship to religious practice. Uh, in any case, there's still the question of how can Christians see a doctrine as Christian when it is so harsh toward the poor and the downtrodden? There is nothing about today's Republican stance on immigration. There's nothing about the stance on questions of racism in America. There's nothing in the stance of Donald Trump that suggests it to my eyes, any compassion, uh, any recognition of what Jesus said when he asks, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus said, whatever you have done for the least of these at the judgment day, when we see the least of these, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done unto me. That's the kind of message that I see in the Christian tradition as inseparable from the Christian tradition. And yet, I will not just stick now with American politics, but if you look at the Christian church in Poland, the Catholic church in Poland, if you look at the Christian church in Russia, if you look at the Christian church in Hungary, you will find that the Christian support is going toward autocrats who treat minorities very harshly and show almost none of the compassion for the poor that Jesus preached throughout his career. Now, uh, I've been very specific saying this applies to American politics today, and I think it's true. I do not understand how Christians can avoid recognizing the problem, the, the cavern between Jesus' teachings and the kinds of things that we see coming from the Republicans who earned Christian votes. And of course, there are all sorts of variations within the Christian community uh, in America and elsewhere. And so, you know, I choose my partners and I, I have people I really admire within the Christian community for their political stance. But I think if the political stance is one of harshness and violence, as we saw on the invasion of the Capitol on John, January 6th, and uh, these kinds of uh, very, very unchristian stances, that, that bothers me a lot. And I, don't see any other way uh, at this moment in time not uh, to do anything but express it. It seems to me that it's okay uh, to look at these questions about Christian values, Christian faith, Christian politics, and the way in which 
the Christian vote as it's designated, the evangelical vote as it's designated in the press, um, to my eyes, uh, is going the wrong way. Thanks for your chance to let me say that. (laughs) Well, thank you for saying it. Um, There are few people in our universe here uh, at the Institute who have as much authority uh, to say it in terms of historical examination, uh, looking at the facts. I mean, you know, very often uh, this kind of assertion, when I make it anyway, is challenged. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. That could never happen. And I do want to take you back again to the period uh, that is your specialty. Yes, and, and ask about again the church in Germany uh, under uh, Nazism. I have come across just references to some groups who casually dismissed the Nazi phenom, basically said, "Well, you know, this will pass. Uh, it's an aberration. It's a quirk in time." Uh, You know, Germans are too smart. German society is too developed. Uh, This won't last. Uh, You know, Adolf Hitler is a buffoon. He's an uneducated uh, clown. Well, we all know that their predictions uh, failed to come Mm -hmm. to pass. And Mm -hmm. the result was a catastrophe. Yes, for Germany, for the world, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, very seriously for the church. Is there reason to give a similar warning today? In other words, you know, to those who say, "Well, you know, it's over." There was this little spurt uh, of, you know, this kind of cruel manifestation in our political life, but it's over. Um, You know, I think you know, uh, Bob, that my journey includes uh, a period when I was very active on the religious right. Mm -hmm. I kept company with some of the people you alluded to in the telling of the modern story here, including the individual responsible for announcing uh, Trump's rumored conversion, which no one could uh-huh. find any evidence of. And and there was, as you said, even within those circles that justified Trump, they retreated on that because it became mm-hmm. apparent there was no fruit, as we say, uh, <laughs> yes. in evangelicalism. Um, but all that simply to say, there are many colleagues of mine, former colleagues of mine, who still defend the notion that Donald Trump was anointed by God to lead the free world and that he remains that anointed servant of God, whether or not he is recognized by the political elites or the political majority in the country. They believe that the last uh, United States election uh, was in fact corrupt and bogus, and uh, that uh, the current president Joe Biden is a pretender to the office. 
And that's the legitimate leader, because he was chosen by God, is uh, Donald Trump. And they remain faithful to him and very supportive of Trump, even in the aftermath of the January 6th violent uh, attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Do you think those things uh, being, uh, you know, in the balance here, that there is a place for a warning? This has happened in other, at other times and in other places, could happen again, might happen again, or is certainly not beyond, you know, the uh, beyond possibility, or or is that taking it too far? Um, I don't think that's taking it too far at all. And in fact, uh, what you've just described to me, even though I am aware that there are these people out there and that there are some people who continue to see Trump as anointed by God, uh, it is very hard for me to credit that or imagine how they can fantasize that or or create a theological explanation or a rational explanation how this particular man who by much of our culture is seen more as a charlatan than as an honest uh, political or spiritual leader um, that you know the evidence of his using this uh, for his own benefit, including, you know, I mean, also the idea that somehow the election was stolen, uh, the the evidentiary base against those stances is so strong and it's so widespread in our culture that I frankly don't know what to do except to say that, uh, uh, you know, there's there's something dreadfully wrong about people who continue to fail to see what's in front of their eyes and uh, recognize that mistakes were made, as it, it can be said paf- passively. <clears throat> the, uh, the other side of it is, are those, is that point of view, is that um, group of voters and um, participants and maybe even power figures um, strong enough and important enough for us to think, wow, this could be like the resurgence of Hitler from 1930 until he rose to power in 1933 until he got his enabling act in April and or in March and and then uh, and then have hazarded the entire world for 12 years. I I don't know where we are in our national journey. Um, I think that we have turned a corner of some sort. Uh, I do think that uh, Christians and uh, people with any sort of impact on public consciousness should continue to recognize that there are dangers like the assault on the Capitol on January 6th and like the uh, fictitious idea that the uh, li- that the election was stolen, uh, despite there not being a single court case that's come up with a shred of evidence that would support it, um, 
there's a danger of that resurfacing and coming back. Uh, I don't know how we fight against it, but using, a, you know, I think we could go back to what I've said about the Nazi period. I think we could say there were men and women of goodwill who thought they understood Germany and thought they were right, that they understood God's will and thought they were right in welcoming Adolf Hitler. The way in which they failed to see all of the signs, the way in which they failed to hold up Hitler's action, his behavior, his attitudes against the teachings of Jesus, uh, that certainly was a massive failure in Germany. And the way they let their own nationalistic blindness, their country, right or wrong, uh, anything that was good for Germany, uh, even if it involved invading Czechoslovakia and Poland and Denmark and Norway and France and Belgium uh, and bringing the world practically to its knees, even all of that uh, somehow was justified uh, because this was the hand of God. Uh, we have to make sure that that doesn't happen under American aegis, under American uh, behaviors. And uh, I think you're doing something uh, very, very worthwhile to protect us against that. Uh, I appreciate having a few minutes, more than a few minutes uh, on your recording and on your podcast to give my uh, opinions about these matters. But I do think that we need to continue to take very seriously that uh, the misuse of Christian faith in a way that seems, I, I think I'd have to say, demonic uh, to me, uh, needs to be questioned. Well, you mentioned, of course, uh, right at the on, outset of our conversation, uh, that you come from a family of pastors. Yes. Uh, uh, above and around you, uh, and that, that I, I think I know enough about you that that, that you may have considered that course for your own life, but you became a, an academic, uh, uh, an historian, and thank God, and I mean that literally, <laughs> thank God you did. I think you are an extremely important resource for us in meeting this challenge in our own moment. But maybe I'll appeal to that vestigial pastoral side of your <laughs> DNA for a minute uh, and ask you, are there any lessons from the aftermath of the Nazi period? Were there any church leaders who admitted they were wrong, uh, that they had uh, committed you know, egregious violations um, of, you know, moral obligation towards their fellow human beings, maybe even their trust of the church and the message of the gospel. And could you give any advice in the light of whether that happened or not, whether it was for the good or for the bad, um, could you offer any advice to church leadership today in the aftermath of, you know, the prophecies concerning uh, Donald Trump, the, the alliance between the church and the Republican Party, uh, 
what we saw on January 6th at the United States Capitol, where Bibles and Jesus banners uh, were held aloft and prayers were offered in Jesus' name uh, in the chamber occupied by violent uh, yeah. invaders, intruders. Um, is there any advice you might offer? Okay, here's here's how the church repaired itself or acknowledged its failures and violations and sins, if I may, after the the war was lost by Germany uh, and and the rebuilding of Europe was underway. Are there any lessons there? Uh, I'm not sure how optimistic I can be because I'm going to start off by saying Germany learned a very large lesson in the Nazi, in the aftermath of the Nazi period. And in fact, although it took at least a generation before Germans, academics and, and clergy and so forth were uh, relatively honest with themselves and about their past, uh, there was a lot of hiding, a lot of denial, uh, a lot of I was never a Nazi type of uh, claims being made. But by the 70s and 80s, German culture had learned to deal with its past very, very effectively. And in fact, uh, German scholarship since then, in the last 40 years, uh, German religious practices, the, the role of bishops and pastors and theologians in Germany uh, especially in the last, what would that be, two generations or so, <clears throat> there has been a tremendous turn toward compassion, um, toward uh, reconciliation with Jews, toward uh, a condemnation of the kinds of behaviors of the church in the past. Uh, all of that has been um, quite remarkable. And within the political context as well, Germany has uh, renounced its past and become a very reliable member of the group of Western democracies and an important member and a supportive member. So that, and that I'm I'm talking in general about Germany, of course, but that's certainly true of the churches, of the theological education, of the kinds of work that churches undertake, the kinds of uh, presentations and uh, emphases that clergy make, uh, I do think that um, that it that Germany turned around from 1945 maybe to 1985, and then uh, from 1985 to the present, uh, there is a massive change that has taken place for the better, in my view, and certainly a recognition, a self-critical recognition of how wrong that was. Um, so the reason that I find this, um, this little uh, assessment uh, less, uh, less useful for us right now is it took an incredible beating before that came about so that Germany was smashed at the end of World War II. You know, of course, with the very uh, rough and heavy uh, Allied bombing campaign with the number of deaths, with all the destruction, and with the uh, humiliation of 
the Nuremberg trials and all of the revelation about the horrors of Nazi behavior, German behavior. Um, I once was with a close German colleague. This was actually in the late 90s, 1980s, excuse me. Uh, we were at a conference at Oxford, an international conference of, uh, you know, people interested in religion and politics and history. And uh, he and I were walking across a, a, one of the beautiful streets in Oxford uh, after we'd had a meal. And we ran into a woman, uh, an Israeli woman that I had met at a meal earlier in the conference. And uh, so I said to my colleague, oh, I, I must introduce you. And and uh, she responded by looking at him and she said, uh, well, you're a German. And he said, yes, I am. And she hesitated a little bit longer and she said, well, I guess I'll shake your hand anyway. There are all sorts of stories like that where Germans of the next generation who had nothing to do with the Nazis have suffered from the kinds of hostility and and questions that are raised for them. He took it in good spirit, and uh, and I don't blame her for uh, she was a survivor, and I don't blame her for uh, her emotional response to that moment of trying to shake a German's hand. Mm -hmm. But I certainly hope that the United States doesn't have to experience the horrific defeat that Germany experienced, which brought them to their senses and brought them to their better angels and brought them to their better uh, understanding of Christianity and of national politics. Um, if we have to go through that, um, I guess I should say, God help us, if you want me to revert to my uh, uh, family pattern, my family tradition. Uh, let us, let us all yeah. say amen yeah. to that. And, uh, wow, Bob Erickson, this has been such a rich time. Thank you for being so generous with uh, your status now as a doyon uh, in this field. Uh, you don't have to do a podcast like this uh, at this stage of your career. Uh, and uh, we are very, very grateful here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute for your kindness, really, in spending so much time and discharging so much knowledge and for the great work you've done, but now the counsel that you offer. And as you say, you know, you hope that America doesn't have to go through anything like Germany did in the aftermath of its catastrophe. And I'd like to uh, put a little turn on a, on a phrase. Uh, we usually say, let it be so, uh, as an answer to prayer or proclamation. In this case, we'll say, let it not be so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that we don't have to experience uh, such a thing. And, you know, as you were reflecting there on how the church has recovered uh, its, itself, at least in a moral, ethical, and, and I would argue spiritual sense, I saw the evidence of that at Flossenburg, where, of course, Bonhoeffer was murdered. Mm -hmm. And uh, there at the chapel that was filled with young people when I was there, mm -hmm. uh, and how the church presented the story of Bonhoeffer and his moral courage in that chapel, uh, full 
of German students. Um, what a wonderful way to recover. And yet, we hope that exercise is not necessary in the same way here, although it could be. But you have helped us. And the folks who are joining us here in this conversation, if you have not read Robert Erickson in Theologians Under Hitler, Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althaus, and Emmanuel Hirsch, hurry, please, quickly go to your favorite bookseller and get that volume now uh, and read it and offer your thoughts on our various uh, uh, platforms. Um, when you're done with that, pick up Complicity in the Holocaust, Churches and Universities in Nazi Germany. Uh, the volume after that, Betrayal, German Churches and the Holocaust. And are you out now with the, the new titles, Bob? The new title will be this fall. Okay. And that's Transformation of Universities? Uh, yes, the Transformation of German Universities in the Nazi era. Okay. It's, so it's actually you're called, not done, are you? You're as prolific well, <laughs> as ever. <laughs> it can't help uh, but find a uh, publication, and we'll keep watching for your latest uh, title coming out, and we'll be talking about it here. And I hope maybe we can visit again uh, in a podcast or another forum. But for now, I'll let you relax. You've worked harder today than than you expected to, and uh, we will benefit from it. Uh, Professor Robert Erickson, uh, historian, uh, teacher, and I'm going to add prophetic voice for our times. Uh, thank you, my friend, for what you've given us today. We are in your debt, and I pray the church here and in many other places. I know we have listeners throughout the world. We can all benefit from it. If you haven't uh, contemplated sharing this podcast series uh, with your colleagues, your family, friends, and certainly fellow church members and leaders, please do so. You'll be doing the world a favor. Thank you, Bob Erickson. It's been a delight to engage in this very informative, salutary, uh, and substantive conversation today. Thank you, Rob, and thanks for your work. <laughs>